Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast after this morning's little uh, <laughs> um, conniption <clears throat> that I had. I may have blown a fuse, a sarcasm fuse over there. Um, just, I just, it's clear to me now that George doesn't care about us, his readers. He does not care. He does not care even enough to attempt to make his writing interesting or, or engaging. And I think that's extremely obnoxious. And at a certain point after maybe five hours and five hours or whatever we've read so far of enduring someone repeatedly displaying second after second for hours on end, they do not care about us. At a certain point, we just have to start thinking we don't really care, George, either. You know, we don't care. Why would we care about the next sentence that comes out of this book when it's clear that he doesn't care what we think of it? He's made no effort to make it interesting, entertaining, fun, engaging, anything. It's just drivel. Clearly quite um, passionate, I suppose you could say, about it. And I think that's what makes me confident as a writer. I'm not really confident that I'm a good writer or anything like that. Um, you know, I have my days when I think I am, I have other days when I think I'm terrible. But the thing I know is that I know what I dislike and I know exactly why. And I've got such a strong sense of like taste, whether my taste is good or not bad in your opinion, I know what I think is good and bad and I can keep working on my stuff until it resembles good. So if our tastes align, I know my work is up to, is going to entertain you. You know, so I do feel passionately about things like this, but I think that you can harness that. You know, that's what makes an artist hating, hating an artist that wastes your time and doesn't care about it. Let's keep reading this piece of shit. It goes like this. Oh, this is where we left off. As well as I remember. Gill's beard was being trimmed in France while the recess committee was forming. Actually makes my screen, my skin crawl. Just, I, and I just think every sentence henceforth is going to be infuriatingly dull. Like he's made no effort. Here we go. <clears throat> he was called over by Plunkett to be his secretary. Gill knew French, and it was understood that he had talked to cooperative economics with Frenchmen. A newspaper was required to explain these ideas to the public. The Express had been purchased by Mr. Dalziel, who made over the control to Plunkett. Gill was appointed editor. Ralston Healy, along with A.E. Yeats, John Ellington, all contributed articles, economics and folklore. Celtic and Indian gods all went into the same pot, an extraordinary broth, very much disliked by the Freeman's Journal and the Parliamentary Party. Dylan made wry faces all the same. The broth was swallowed and Gerald Belfour brought in his bill for the creation of the State Department. Plunkett was appointed vice president and it was understood that the whole central authority should be in his hands, though the nominal head was the Home Secretary. About 170000 a year was voted and a great party of part of this money would go in providing for an immense staff of secretaries, inspectors and lecturers. A.E. could have had any one of these places for the asking, luxurious places from 300 to 1,000 a year, but he preferred to remain with the IAOS, 
It was not his own child he had reared it and taught it to walk. Now shouldn't he now should he desert it? Besides a comfortable house and servants, a quiet walk down to his office in the morning to sign a few letters and a quiet conviction that he is running the country by doing ruining the country by running the country by doing so is not like A.E. His soul is too personal for his office life. He must be doing his own work. The work is different kinds, but it is also his own work. He is himself when he rides all over the country preaching cooperation to the farmers as much as when he returns to Dublin and begins a poem or paints a picture. Besides, the post of secretary seemed from the very beginning to belong to Gill. During the year he edited the Express, he had prepared the public and the official mind for the Department of Agriculture and Technical Instruction, constituted on continental lines. But Gill had been a plan of campaigner and a nationalist member of parliament. And at Tillyra, while the adaptation of the tale of a town was in progress, Gill's dilemma was often under consideration. Edward was a large recipient of his confidence, but often spoke to me very seriously on the matter. He believed Gill to be, if not in the flesh, at least in the spirit, a member of the Parliament Party. And his unalterable opinion was that a nationalist should never accept office under an English government. But it seemed to me that Gill would act very unwisely if he refused the secretaryship. And I think I remember saying to Edward that Gill should have consulted me instead, for he would have gotten from me the advice that would have been agreeable to him to take the primrose path the scent of which is already in his nostrils. One of the charms of Edward's character is its simplicity. He knows so little about life that it was a surprise to him to hear that men do not consult their friends when their determination is to walk in the thorny path. The martyr, I said, doesn't consult among his brethren. He is resolved hard as in the loneliness of his heart. Oh, you're so smart and cool. I see what you mean, I see what you mean, Edward answered pathetically because he was so much dumber than me. So then, you think, no, my dear Edward, I interrupted, because I know everything. We are among the complexities of human nature. Our hesitations continue, even though we know in our subconsciousness, that's a word you'll learn one day, Edward, because you're so dumb, that the end is decreed. Gill's nationalism is quite sincere. The flame doesn't burn very fiercely, but then his nature is not a great nature like David's, and our natures give, overlook the platitude, only what they are capable of giving. But though a flame throws out little heat and light, it is a flame for all that, and the faintest flame is worthy of our respect. All the same, I don't think that a nationalist should ever take office from the English government, and Edward marched off to his tower to reconsider his third act, which Yeats and I had agreed he never would be able to write satisfactorily. Gill came to Tillyra, and little before Edward's play was finally refused by Yeats and myself, because we're so smart, and seated himself firmly on the fence, as is his wont, because he's dumb. Edward, I believe, continued to consult him regarding the revisions Yeats and I were daily proposing, because we're smarter than him and he's dumb. All the same, his name was omitted from that part of my narrative. He seemed a side issue, and in Dublin I was obliged to cast him out of it again, because I'm so much better than him. But now my narrative demands his presence and his voice, and I hasten to tell that as soon as Edward left me in Marion Street, the reader remembers that he refused to advise me regarding his political situation, Gill's name occurred to me. 
He seemed to be, on the instant, the very person who could guide me through the maze of Irish political intrigue, and my steps turned mechanically from the Shelburne Hotel, whither I was going, towards Clare Street. A few minutes later, I was on Gill's doorstep, asking myself why Gill had chosen to confide in Edward rather than me, because Edward's dumb, and hoping for a long talk with him after the reading of the play. Scruples of conscience are my specialty, and I was genuinely concerned about his future, being naturally très bon pour la vie, that is to say, très officiel revient. On the doorstep, it seemed to me that he was bound to consider not only himself, but his wife and his child. I love how he couldn't choose which little bit of show-off French to use, so he used two that I bet would mean the same thing. Um, on the doorstep, it seemed to me that he was bound to consider not only himself, but his wife and his children. My thoughts turned about them while I read the play, and when I was reading was over, Gill began to talk on the political questions that were then agitating the Ireland. He is always diffuse and vague without much power of concentration, but that night it was easy to see that his thoughts were elsewhere. You will confide in me presently, I said, and to lead him into confidence, I spoke of the express, which had then spent all the capital that it had been advanced by Dr. Daz, Dal, Mr. Dalziel, nor was it likely that Horace Plunkett would put any more capital into the newspaper, and after a little discourse as to what might be done with the newspaper if a capitalist could be found, Gill mentioned that he had been offered the post of secretary to the department. That's the best bit of news I've heard this long while. Edward told me that you had consulted him and he thinks that, on account of the pledge, I am no longer a member of Parliament, but my sympathies are with my friend John Redmond, who, to take the rough with the smooth, seems to be doing very well. But Gill, Edward and some others who advised you against accepting the post haven't considered your interests. And they do right, Gill answered, not to consider my interests. My interests don't count with me for the moment. What I am thinking is that Plunkett may miss a magnificent chance if he has nobody by him who knows the country. But Plunkett is an Irishman. Plunkett is a Protestant, and a Protestant can never know Ireland. A Protestant that has always lived in Ireland. Even so, Ireland is Catholic, if she is anything. And you're a Catholic first of all, Gil, for you abandoned the plan of the campaign when the Church condemned it. Certainly I did, and what strikes me now is that it is hard for if Ireland should be deprived of the labour of one of her sons because she he once belonged to the Parliamentary Party. I've written to Gerald Belfour on the subject, and Gil rose from his chair and walked to his writing table. Will you read me the letter? Yes, I'll read it to you. And when he had finished, I said, The letter you've just read to me is a very good letter, but it fills me with apprehension, for it seems to me that you leave Gerald Belfour to decide whether you should accept the appointment that he is offering you. Remember your wife and children. If I were convinced that the best service I could render to Ireland, dash... But what you could you do for Ireland better than put your gift of coordination at the country's service? Yes, coordination is the thing. The delegation of the details to the subordinates, reserving to oneself the consideration of the main outline, the general scheme, yet I am sh- not sure that at the head of the great newspaper I shouldn't be able to serve Ireland better than as the secretary of the department. Or perhaps the great newspaper might come after the secretaryship. It will take some years to get the department into working order. Home rule is bound to come sooner or later, and the department will create an immense batch of officials, all well-equipped with ideas, and the preparation of this great machine would be a task worthy of any man's talent. When home rule comes, there will be an immense change in the government of the country, and very likely the old civil servants will be pensioned off. If such a change were to happen, it would interest me to take charge of a great daily. 
And have you any idea of a policy for the paper? What line do you think Ireland should take in the present crisis? And while drawing the golden hair of his beard through his insignificant little hands, Gill began to tell me that unlike England, Ireland had never known how to compromise. I gathered that he had been reading John Morley and had discovered arguments that had satisfied him it would not be wise for the race or for the individual to preserve, sorry, to persevere in the nationalism begotten of a belief that a great European conflagration might give birth to a hero who would conquer England and incidentally give Ireland her freedom. He's beginning to see, I thought, that if the long-dreamed-of hero did arise, he might propose to enlist Ireland's help for his own purpose and not surrender her forever to Donnybrook Fair and an eternal singing of the weir and of the green. He has just reached the age when the Catholic Celt begins to see that though he may continue in his belief in magicians with power to turn God into wafer, to forgive sins and redeem souls for purgatory, it would be wise for him to put by his dreams of Brian Boru to keep them in the background of his mind, a sort of Tirnanan Og, into which he retires in the evening in moments of lassitude and leisure. England allows the Catholic Celt to continue his idle dreaming, knowing well that as soon as sappy youth is over he will come asking for terms. Some become policemen, some soldiers, some barristers. Only a negligible minority fails to fall into line, and that is why the cult is so ineffectual. His dreams go one way and his actions go another, but why blame the race? Every race produces more gills than davits. A man like Davit, immune from the temptations of compromise, whose ideas and whose actions are identical, my thoughts, breaking off, returned to Gill, and while listening to him drawing political wisdom from the very ends of his beard, it seemed to me a pity that Edward had not confided his plot to me from the beginning. For when we should have been able to create a character quite different from Jasper Dean and much more real, but the play would have to be finished at once. The next morning I went away to London to patch up one that should not compromise too flagrantly Yeats's literary integrity. It seems to me now that I have made up some arrears of story, and am free to tell that in the year 1901, when I came to live in Ireland, I found Gill the centre of the Irish Literary and Agricultural Party, and looked upon him, and looked upon by it as the man who could weather the political peril and bring the Irish nation into port. When I arrived, I found Yeats speaking of Gill as a man of very serious ability, but as if afraid lest he might compromise literature, he always added an excellent journalist. A.E. may have thought that with Edward that Gill should have refused the post of secretary, but to criticise Gill's hobby for compromise would be to criticise Plunkett, and as well as I recollect, A.E.'s view of the appointment was that Gill understood Catholic Ireland and would be able to give effect to Plunkett's ideas. Edward, whenever the subject was mentioned, growled out that he had not hesitated to tell Gill when he came to him for advice that in his opinion a nationalist should never accept office from an English government. He rolled out this opinion like a great rock, and after having done it, he seemed duly impressed by his own steadfastness of purpose and his own strength of mind, it may be that abstract morality of every kind is repugnant to me, for I used to resent Edward's apothem, apothegm. Or was it that the temptation could not be resisted to measure Edward's intellect once again? 
Your political morality is, of course, impeccable. But, dear Edward, will you tell me why you are coming out to Dolkey on this Sunday afternoon to see Gill? Why do you associate with people whose political morality you cannot altogether approve? My dear George, all my life I have lived with people whose moralities I do not approve of. You don't think that I approve of yours, do you? But, you know, I never believe that your life is anything else but pure. It is only your mind that is indecent. And Edward laughed, enjoying himself hugely. As soon as you have finished your joke, perhaps you will tell me what you think Gill ought to have done. I don't see why he shouldn't have got his living by journalism, so he did so before. But you don't know what it is to get your living by journalism. You can't, for you've got 3,000 a year, or is it four? And not a wife, not even a mistress. Now, George. And then a tram passed Blackrock Catholic Church, and I said, You used to insist on sending me to Mass when I was staying with you in Galloway. Do you know, Edward, that Welland suggests he should turn the horse's head into cool? And while you thought we were at Mass, Keats and I were talking Diamond and Grenier. A great blankness swept over Edward's face, and very often between Blackrock and Delkey in the pauses of our conversation I reproached myself for having shaken his belief that he had made himself secure against God's reproaches for the conduct of his guests at Tillyra. Did Gill abstain from meat on Fridays when he was at Tillyra? Gill is a good Catholic, but you are a bad Catholic. To call me a bad Catholic is one of Edward's jokes, and my retort is always that Rome would not regard me as such, that no man is answerable for his baptism. In calling me a bad Catholic, you are very near to heresy. His face became grave again, and he muttered, Mon ami more, mon ami more. Old friends have always their own jokes, and this joke has tickled Edward in his sense of humour for the last twenty years or more. It appears that in a moment of intense boredom, I had asked for a very dignified old lady in a solemn salon in the Faubourg Saint-Germain, and on receiving an answer in the negative, I had replied, Vous aimez sans vous, madame le petit jour de mou. The old lady appealed to her husband, and explanations had ensued, and my friend Marshal of the Confessions had to explain... What history does not relate. The story has no other point except that it was tickled Edward in all his fat for twenty years, and that he regaled Gill with it afterwards, shaking with laughter all the while and repeating the phrase Vu de Madame le Pifile de Mont, until at last to stop him I had to say, My dear Edward, I'm ashamed to find you indulging in such improper conversation. A pleasant place on Sunday Afternoons was that terrace hanging some hundred feet or more above the sea, for on the terrace between the grey house and the cliff's edge, Gill often forgot that he was wise and was willing to let us enjoy his real self, his cheerful, superficial nature, a pleasant coming and going of light impressions, and this real self was to us strenuous ones. What a quiet pool is to the thirsty deer and noontide, he reflected all our aspirations, giving back to Yeats the wonderings of Usheen as the one Irish epic, and the heather field to Edward as pure, fresh Ibsen. A.E. often scanned the pool for a glimpse of economic Ireland, and Edward gazed long and anxiously into it without discovering any faintest shadow of the Irish language. 
Gill did not sink out of sight like the wild duck in Ibsen's play, who dives down to the bottom and holds onto the weeds. He was for once decisive. He was going to send his boys to Trinity College, where, as Yeats said, our own folktales had never been crooned over the fireside. Yeats was splendid that afternoon, reminding Gill that it was not myths from Palestine, nor India, that had inspired the Celt, but remembrances of the many beautiful women that had lived long ago and the deeds of our heroes. Edward bit his lips at the words myths from Palestine and took me aside to confide the fact that words like these hurt him just as he had sat upon a pin. Gill knew that such words hurt nobody and he continued airily, airy, cheerful, benign, until he thought it time to return to his wisdom and then he spoke of what he thought the policy of the Gaelic League should be in Irish-speaking districts, long-drawn-out platitudes and aphorisms of leading fall, lead falling from his lips, and to escape from these I began to take an interest in the colour and texture of his necktie, both of which were exquisite, and then, from my meditations, he was telling Yeats that he liked the English language and the Irish, but he hated the Anglo-Irish. I hate the peasant. I like the drama of intellect. Yeats sniggered, and a cormorant came over the sea and alighted upon a rock, with a fish for the chicks in the nest. Gill said to his children, who had come to tell him that supper was on the table, all our literary differences were laid to rest in the interest that we soon began to feel for the food. Only A.E. prefers his ideas to his food, Yeats pecked, and Edward gobbled, and looking round this happy table, it seemed to me that we liked coming to Dolky because Gill liked to have us about him. Our pleasure was dependent on the pleasure that our host felt in our company, as kind-tempered as a man has ever lived, I said to myself, and listened with more indulgence to him than I had been able to show in the afternoon. When stretched out on the sofa, he abandoned himself to memories of the days when a boy leapt out from behind the hedge and whispered, Police, I asked, was that the night you were arrested? And he told us of his trial and conviction, and we felt, despite the languor of the narrative, that he was telling us of what of what was most real and intense in his life. And I listened, noting how unselfish instincts rise to the surface and sink back again, making way for selfish instincts, and how this kindly-tempered man had floated down the tide of casual ideas into the harbour of 1300 a year. And all the way home, on top of the tram, we thought of Gill's kindly, sympathetic nature, revealed to me a few weeks later in an incident, which I cannot do else than include. A rumour reached me that A.E. was sick and dangerously ill with a bad cold and cough, which he did not seem to be able to shake off, and which, whoever brought me the news, did not finish the sentence for one does not like to mention the word consumption in Ireland. If he starts out again on another bicycle tour, riding his old bicycle in all kinds of weather, sleeping in in any inn, you know how he neglects his food. He must leave Ireland for a long holiday, I said, and went down to see Gill. The shame of it, Gill, the application of the finest intelligence we have in Ireland to preaching economics in Connemara villages... Plunkett should do his own work. A great poet must need... need must needs be chosen a great spirit. A great poet must needs be chosen a great spirit. Were the moon to drop out of the sky, the nights would be darker, but Dublin without air would be like a sky without a sun in it. Ugh. Gill came come out for a walk. This is a matter on which I must speak to you seriously. It is indeed a serious matter. 
Gil answered. I will come out with you. We must get him out of the country. I know of nothing more serious than this cough and cold you speak of. How long do you say it has been upon him? He's been ailing for at least six weeks. And now, in this beautiful month of July, he's lying in his bed without sufficient attendance. You know how careless he is. He will not send for a doctor, nor will he have a nurse. We certainly must get him out of the country. I will devise some excuse to send him to Italy to report on... Gill mentioned some system of agriculture which had been tried successfully in Italy and which might be reproduced successfully here, but no matter whether it can or not, it will serve as an excuse. It'll be easy for me to provide for the expenses of the journey, but he'll never consent to go to Italy alone. Will you go with him? Yes, I'll go with him and look after him as best I can. Three months in Italy will throw me back with my work, but never, never mind. Coo-coo-coo. I will go to Italy and... You agree with me that A.E. is the most important man in Ireland? Question mark. End of thing. Um, wow. I love how he he's being told a few paragraphs back about being told a story when he, someone was arrested and he says, despite the languor of the narrative, languor, the state of feeling, tiredness or inertia. How... Can you describe anyone else's narrative as that and not understand the irony? Holy hell. All right. Thanks for listening. Catch you tomorrow.